0: Thank you for tuning in to Connections and Directions, our University of Michigan civil and environmental engineering podcast. My name is Michelle Santillian and I am the CEE marketing communications specialist and host of this series. During our podcasts, we are featuring members of our CEE community and how their work reflects our mission of engineers and service to society. We will be highlighting our strategic directions and our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. CEE's five strategic directions are human habitat experience, shaping resource flows, adaptation, automation, and smart infrastructure finance. Our guest for this podcast is Associate Professor Jeremy Bricker. Professor Bricker has a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering and a BA in physics from Rutgers University, and a master's degree and a PhD in civil and environmental engineering from Stanford University. Professor Bricker and his students use hydraulic laboratory experiments, numerical simulations, and post-disaster field surveys to investigate the resilience of structures and infrastructure exposed to both increasing hazards due to climate change, and increasing consequences due to expansion of development in coastal and flood-prone areas. His research focuses on four main themes, damage, flood phenomena, countermeasures, and hydropower. Professor Bricker, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for the introduction, Michelle.
0: Please share with our listeners some details about your research area and goals and how they align with CEE's strategic directions and our mission of engineers and service to society.
1: Well, Among the strategic directions, the human habitat experience and adaptation naturally fit the work that I do. Much of my work focuses on how structures respond to flood loading, and wave loading due to hurricanes, tsunamis, or floods, river floods. And that means um, as the climate changes, as sea levels rise, as storms and storm intensities and frequencies change, structures will need to change as well in order to be more resistant to the forcing they're exposed to. That's adaptation. That's one method of adaptation. Uh, Other methods of adaptation are Uh, Changes in land use uh, redefining where the built environment exists versus what to restore to a natural environment that crosses over with at with um, the human habitat experience Where the spatial planning of a city for example is One method that can be used to reduce exposure to coastal hazards Um, this is a common method used in Japan for example, after the tsunami in 2011, the the use of coastal areas for agricultural and recreational purposes instead of residential and commercial purposes is one of the measures put in place to try to reduce vulnerability of people to that tsunami hazard. As we in the U.S. adapt to changing Flood and hurricane hazards; those are lessons that we can learn from what's being done done elsewhere, and and that land use affects where people live, and um, therefore the human habitat experience.
0: Given what you just said about you know the flooding and and things like that, and land use, and and lessons we can learn, um, for example, the recent floods in Kentucky. Um, is there anything specific that might be able to be, um, put into place to avoid such devastation in the future?
1: Well, I think the floods in Kentucky are, are one example of how the classical way of determining what flood return periods are is, um, needs to be updated, um, in light of climate change. We, we determine... 100 year floods, 500 year floods, based on long historical data series. As the climate changes, those data are no longer stationary. And what was a 100 year flood in some cases can now be a 50 or 25 year flood, it, it changes. And so one way to adapt to the changing climate is to redefine where these floodplains are. If we're gonna continue as we currently do with the FEMA National Flood Insurance um, program definitions of the 100 year and 500 year floodplains. We need to update those for what the current and projected climates are going to mean those floodplains are going to be. The other thing we can do is to consider countermeasures um, such as how close we live to the rivers, such as what elevations we live at, Um, or if we need to live in close proximity and at low elevations, the use of protective structures like dikes um, flood walls though that those themselves introduce a whole other range of hazards such as a false sense of security Because um, the structures themselves can fail. They're always designed to a certain liability um, and that's one of the items of research and debate within the the natural hazards community is Should we build more and better protective structures? Um, to protect people living in vulnerable areas or do these structures just encourage people to live in the vulnerable areas and should we rather rely more on land use planning and um, education Mm -hmm. rather than engineering measures to reduce vulnerability? Of course, the answer is going to be some combination of the two. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because when you go to a coastal region, for example, you see houses built on stilts And, you know, you see people building right along the beaches, and you can only imagine how erosion can affect that, Um, especially if a a terrible hurricane comes in, you know, a strong enough hurricane, of course, can can devastate that area. Uh, is there any recommendation for that type of a scenario on a beach, for example? Or, or would, those, would those parameters pretty much be the same, but just, you know, uh, using the types of regulation or education, as you mentioned, um, it, you know, advise people not to build so closely, that sort of thing?
1: Well, what we can advise people to do is not always going to be what they do, right? Because there's a... A trade-off between building a resilient or a safe community versus uh, one that people actually like living in, and people like to live close to the sea because it's beautiful, convenient, um, refreshing. I think people will always want to live near the sea, and so what. And This is another of the debates within the hazard and the natural hazards community: is do we want to build or to encourage people to build safely, which means in areas that are not so exposed to the hazards further inland, further uphill, or do we want them to build um, where they want to live but in a very robust way? So back during, I think it was Hurricane Irma or Michael, I can't remember, in Mexico Beach, Florida, there was an example of a um, reinforced concrete home among on stilts on the beach amongst all the homes uh, made of timber, also on stilts on the beach, um, where the really solidly built reinforced concrete home uh, was not uh, destroyed, whereas the ones around it were. Uh, that's an example of if we're gonna build in the hazard zone, um, an expensive but reliable way to um, reduce the vulnerability of structures there. But even those structures will have their limits. There's always going to be uh, an an event that's going to be above the design event for any structure. So for most of the events, most of the hurricanes that we foresee a structure like that might be um great to have, but for the largest events it also will fail. So even with structures like that, if we're gonna live in a hazard area, hazardous area, education is still the most effective countermeasure to uh, make sure people know when and where to evacuate. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the measures that the US, the United States is is really well-renowned for is the encouragement of evacuation from mm-hmm. hurricanes and the great response to that encouragement um, in, in Japan and the Netherlands, which are other countries with strong hazards, storm surge hazard, tsunami hazard, people have tended to feel a false sense of security protection by the structures in place to protect them, the dikes, the sea walls. But in events uh, that were larger than the design, they were designed for, they have failed. Um, in the case of the US, where we don't have a lot of protective infrastructure, people know they have to evacuate, and they do it every year. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a a strong point of the U.S. Mm-hmm. system that people do not have the full sense of security and, and know they have to take responsibility for themselves.
0: How did you become interested in your area of study? Was there a course that you took at some point or a personal experience that you had uh, that led you to explore this topic in depth?
1: There are three items that brought me to it. One, when I, was, when I was in college and I was studying mechanical engineering, I really enjoyed fluid mechanics as well as uh, mechanics of structures. This is a natural intersection of the two, the resilience of structures against floods. When I was also in college, I was on the crew or the rowing team. Um, we'd row past many structures in, or conf- we were confined by structures in the river, such as dams. And um, I saw many locks and gates uh, regulating what were old shipping canals, barge canals that I thought were very interesting. So that brought me to study hydraulics. And then after graduate school, when (coughs) the uh, Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005, and in 2004, the Indonesia tsunami, Indian Ocean tsunami happened, the uh, effects of these large disastrous events on structures really came to my attention as something that I was excited by understanding. Then, when the tsunami happened in J- Japan in 2011, I had the opportunity to investigate damage to or destruction of coastal bridges and breakwaters and dikes. That set me off on my current course of research
0: when you said you examined that were you able to actually visit Japan and see the see that firsthand or were you studying it from afar
1: no i i went there okay to um to survey the bridges and breakwaters that were destroyed mm-hmm. take uh measurements of scour holes measurements of structures that were displaced to be able to use to validate hydraulic model results that i um simulated afterward.
0: So you were really able to learn from the past and move forward with that.
1: Correct. I think in in uh, this field of civil engineering related to natural hazards. That's one of the best tools that we have because we're not able to recreate these natural hazards in the laboratory at least at scale. So when there's a lot of data in the field that can be recorded that can be used to validate hindcasts, which is the past version of a forecast, which is the future, hindcasts of the disastrous events, the hurricanes the tsunamis, to make sure we're simulating them right. And that allows us the, the best guess at what really happened
0: so using that information um what classes are you teaching this semester and do you have ideas for future courses you would like to one day incorporate into the ce curriculum
1: um the this past semester i taught design of hydraulic systems which is about piped uh, drinking water systems as well as hydropower systems Water supply systems and hydropower systems are the same thing. They just work in the opposite direction. And drink. Hi- water supply systems use electricity to drive a pump to pressurize the system. Hydropower systems use pressure to drive a turbine to generate electricity, so they're the same things in reverse. This semester, I'll be teaching a course on tsunamis, floods, and hurricanes, which is related to my research um, to help students experience what it's like to work as a practicing coastal and hydraulic engineer and design the types of structures they'll have to design in that career field and the other course that i'll be teaching in the winter is undergraduate fluid mechanics which is the basis of all of this
0: okay Uh, so it gives people a good foundation then really
1: right well that that together with Mechanics of solids or mechanics of materials, I guess, are the real foundations to this field.
0: And how do you incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion into your research and courses?
1: One thing that makes that easy in my field is that my simulation results are spatial. That means if I simulate a hurricane or a tsunami or a flood, it'll simulate how the inundation affects all the neighborhoods of a city, for example. Um, So I have a current project that'll, or an upcoming project where um, together with a social scientist and an economist at Texas A&M, we'll be hindcasting hurricane uh, Ike, which hit Texas back in 2000, Houston back in 2008, um, and simulating a bunch of hurricanes in the future to assess how the storm surge barrier that is going to be built there will differently affect different communities of different socioeconomic status. Um, And using a model like this, we can tweak the barrier designs to have, to differently affect different communities. Um, And a goal, one goal of course, is always to minimize damage. Uh, Another goal is to to maximize the equity of protection. So we're not only protecting the neighborhoods that already have all the money to pay for the repairs that they need, but to also protect those who are more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a natural way since the since the work itself, the research itself, the simulation results are spatial. Um, it's straightforward to uh, assess how um, proposed countermeasures, be it barriers like this or be it retention basins, dams, um, beach nourishments, coastal wetlands, permeable pavements, rain gardens, how all of those will affect the spatial distribution of flood damage, which uh, allows us to understand the equity uh, implications of any proposed countermeasures before we actually build them.
0: And what is the most exciting part of your research? When you're, um, is it when you're doing these field assessments? Is it when you're teaching with students or a combination of both?
1: Um, The field assessments themselves are very interesting, um, but you gotta remember they're, they're always after really devastating events. So I can't say they're exciting. They're a combination of fascinating and horribly depressing because um you see areas and you see people at their lowest um but that being said those people who have experienced um things that they own destroyed uh often want to talk about it um they want people to understand what they've lost and uh they want to help make things better so they're even though they're grieving in many cases they uh, want to share their, many of them want to share their stories and help improve things, which is our job. Um, but that being said, um, when you are in a field like this, you. I've been to many places that people tell me have been just excellent vacation spots, but I've never been on there for vacation. I'm always there after a disaster. Um, like the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, New Orleans, um, I've only seen, when the bridges have fallen down and there are no buildings left, just foundations. Um, whereas people I've talked with tell me how beautiful they were and they can be again. I would love to go back and see them again when they are rebuilt and people are have recovered. Um, so the, the field studies are fascinating. Um, not exciting though because of the situation that you're in after disaster. Um, the most exciting part of the work as, a, as an educator is to see students get it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they struggle uh, to understand the concept and then suddenly they're applying it correctly. That's satisfying and exciting to me as a teacher. Mm-hmm. What's exciting as an engineer is to understand what could have been done, what could be done to a structure so the destruction doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Like for example, I was studying a bridge in Japan that was destroyed by the tsunami uh, 11 years ago. It turned out that if that bridge had been built a little bit differently, meaning if the seawall hadn't been built under it, or if it hadn't been um, banked for the traffic on it, it wouldn't have um, been destroyed. Um, Understanding the physics that caused the destruction and being able to understand, well, how can, how could it have been designed so it wouldn't have been destroyed? Or how could the next one be designed so it wouldn't be destroyed? That's what's exciting to me, is understanding what what destroyed something and being able to say what should be done so that something that's going to replace it won't be destroyed in the next event.
0: And that really gets back to our mission of engineers in service to society because you are preventing, hopefully, that um, future uh, devastation. You are building stronger for the future and um, in the process probably saving countless lives or at least um, minimizing the the harm brought to people in that in that future weather or climate disaster.
1: I hope so. I like the way you state that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's I think that might be what sets civil, civil engineers apart from other engineering disciplines is that civil engineering is engineering in service to society. That's usually the reason people go into civil engineering. They want to do something that helps civilization or helps people, um, as opposed to making a better widget, uh, they want to make people's lives better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what defines civil engineering.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast conversation. For more information about CEE at Michigan, please visit our website at CEE dot U-M-I-C-H dot e-d-u. You can also reach our YouTube channel and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages from our website.